We are going to roll through 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but before we do, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we come to you today, Father, I just pray that you would help us to learn from your word. I pray that you would help me to be clear as I try to speak and to talk about what your word has to say to us today. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would bless this time and that you would be exalted. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This passage overall has several unique features to it. The first unique feature to it would be that Paul, when he's talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is trying to get across the idea of contentment no matter wherever you are. Whatever stage of life you're in, wherever you are, be content in those circumstances. Stay as you are, remain as you are. He repeats it over and over and over again. But in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul also has a unique style that's different than what you would see in 1 Corinthians 6 or 5 or some of the other chapters that we've gone through. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul will say things like, not I, but the Lord, not the Lord, but I, my opinion, things of this nature. Now, immediately, some people want to say, well, we don't have to pay attention to the chapter then. It's Paul's opinion. But we have to realize that Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and what he's trying to communicate when he tells us these words is that the Lord didn't give this command when the Lord walked on the earth, but that he's giving it through the power of the Holy Spirit, so it applies to our lives just as much. Also, you're going to see a phenomenal parallelism of 12 different times Paul gives commands to women and to men. Now, that's not a big deal for us in modern day context, but when you think about the time in which Paul's writing, for him to give a command to the men and to the women is demonstrating great equality of men and women in his time. So it's pretty radical. And so just take note of that. And we're going to look, we're going to start here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, looking at verse 1. I'm just going to read through a couple of verses. I'll stop, I'll back up and talk about it, and then we're just going to walk through it. I'm not going to read it all because it's so long. It begins here and it says in chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. All right, let's pause right there. What's going on here? In this section, when we start turning to 1 Corinthians 7 and what follows, you're going to see that Paul is now responding to questions. And so Paul says here at the very beginning, concerning the matters about which you wrote, you wrote me about some things, I'm going to answer those questions. And in quotation marks, you see the first one. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Some of your translations may have not to even touch a woman. You understand that's used about nine times in the Greek. Every time is talking about a sexual relationship. And so that's what it's talking about here is having sexual relations with a woman. Now, anybody want to say amen to that verse? It's not good. Don't, just don't even go there. It's, he's answering a question that's a bad question. The Corinthians are writing him, and what's happened in Corinth, and we don't know exactly for sure all the details, but they're writing him, and they're saying, it's not good for a guy to be with a girl. And so you may have had people in marriage who took that 1 Corinthians 5 passage where it said, don't be with unbelievers, literally, or they may have the same type philosophy that Augustine had where sex was bad, and all of a sudden, they're writing, and they're saying, a man doesn't need to be with with his wife, and the wife doesn't need to be with the husband. And probably what's taken place here, although we can't know for sure, is the First Corinthians 6 context where we just got through saying, don't go to the prostitutes. Well, why were they going to the prostitutes? It's because in their own marriage, they were not having the proper sexual relationship. And here they write the question in that, and they say, it's not good for them to be together sexually. And then Paul's gonna respond to that question. Now, before I give you Paul's response... 
These questions continue on through the remainder of the book. When we get to food offered to idols, he's going to say now concerning food offered to idols. When you get to the gift of tongues, he's going to say now concerning the spiritual gifts. When you talk about the resurrection, he's going to say now concerning the resurrection. Now concerning the offering in chapter 16. And so what we see happening is Paul's responding to the letter and to the questions that have been given through the remainder of the book here. And he responds and says this in verse 2. But... Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Deprive not one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now that's where this section kind of stops. So they wrote Paul and they said, Paul, it's good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. Paul says, whoa, wait a second. What about sexual immorality? Because of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. Now notice what it's not saying here. Each man should go out and pretend he's in Hollywood in a movie and see how many girls he could sleep with. That's not what Paul says. Paul says each man should have his own wife. And then he says in the equality that's demonstrated here, for the wife or the, each woman should have her own husband there in verse two. And in verse three, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Now that would have been a bombshell in those days. It would have been telling the husband that the wife has the right to her conjugal rights from the husband and addressing the husband in this way would have been different. It would have been unique. And he continues on here and he says, likewise, the wife to her husband. Now, what's Paul saying here? Paul is not saying that you can get married and go demand to your spouse, your body belongs to me, you do whatever I tell you to do. That's not what he's saying at all. And so you don't have that type of liberty. What he's saying, though, is that once you marry, those two become one. And so that you live in such a way that you fulfill the needs of your spouse and you demonstrate that oneness because, as it says in Genesis, the man shall leave father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. And in becoming the one flesh, there's the one union there. And the word in Genesis, when it talks about that union, it's the word ehad. And that word is the actual relationship that's also described in the Trinity when it talks about your God is one God. It's a complex union. And so when we come together in marriage, we're actually displaying the gospel. And so as you come together, you're not demanding of your spouse things that your spouse would not be comfortable with. You're loving your spouse as Christ loved the church and you're participating in a union that is gonna be mutually uplifting, mutually beneficial and a union that should be a beautiful love, but you don't use sex in a way that you lord it over people or that it's a manipulation tool. You don't use it in a way that says, if you do these things for me, then we'll do these things for you. That's not the picture at all of what Paul is taking place. Paul is saying here, what should take place in a marriage relationship is that because of sexual immorality, each man has his own wife, each woman her own husband. So there's your monogamy. And in verse three, the husband should give to the wife conjugal rights, likewise the wife to the husband. Verse four, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. And catch this, what it says here in verse five. Do not deprive one another. Now deprive in the original languages is the exact same word as defraud 
in chapter six, verses six and seven. Do not defraud somebody. Do not deprive somebody. And so he's saying here, if you're in a marriage relationship that you should enjoy sex, sex is not evil. It's not wrong. It's intended for marriage. It's something that's beautiful. It's something that's God glorifying. It's something that God created. And everybody in the place at that point should say, amen. Once you get married, you enjoy the sexual relationship that God has created, but not until then. Now, let me tell you what the devil's gonna try to do. The devil will try to have every one of you that's single and dating have sex before marriage, which is wrong. And if you're married... He's going to try to keep you from having sex. He wants to break up the union so that it is not together, so that he can tempt you then with sexual immorality. The same sexual immorality he's going to tempt you with when you're single to get you to violate God's law. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps for agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, let's move to verse six and look and see what he says here. Now, as a concession, not a command, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I am myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. What's he saying here? I wish everybody was single. I wish everybody were just like me and they were single. How many of you want to say amen to Paul's statement there? Anybody in the room? A couple of you? Nobody, nobody wants to say amen to that. We live in the Cedarville society, right? Ring by spring. You've all heard it. I've heard it. That's what you think. And some of you think every time I mention the word marriage, well, he's, that's just putting me in a bad spot because I'm not married. Let me say this very clearly to you right now, all right? If you are single, don't waste your singleness. We're gonna get to this point later where Paul talks about the fact that when you're single, you don't have near as many concerns as if you're married. And what tends to happen in society is if you're single and you want the ring by spring, you spend your whole time being single, looking to get married, and then sometimes you get married and you spend your whole time wishing you were still single. Don't do that. Be content wherever you are and use whatever you have for God's glory. If you're single, use your singleness for God's glory. If you're married, use your marriedness if that's even a word, for God's glory. And make sure that you're having fun for God wherever he's got you in whatever situation. Notice what it says here though. It says, I wish all were like I am myself, but each one has his own gift. His own gift, the word there is charisma, which comes from charis, which comes from grace. And so it is a grace gift. There may be some of you in the room right now, you have the gift of singleness. If you have the gift of singleness, which is a grace gift from God, don't ever feel like you are a lesser person because you have the gift of singleness. God has given you that gift so that you can use that gift for his honor and his glory. But at the same time, if you have that gift of singleness, don't take it personally when we talk about marriage and how good marriage is, because the Bible talks about how good good marriage is too. So Paul here is uplifting it. And in fact, if you have the gift of singleness, you got the trump card. When we talk about marriage in Genesis and we say, God said it's not good for a man to be alone. Or when we talk about marriage in Ephesians five as a picture of the gospel and somebody goes, don't you wish you were married? You go, no, I'm like Paul. Trump card number one, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Fine. Yeah. But, but don't you really wish you were married? Nope. I'm like Jesus. Game over, right? It's done. 
You just threw the ace of spades from up your sleeve, however you want to play it. So if you have this grace gift, don't let it bother you. Don't, don't get concerned when people talk about marriage. Don't be hypersensitive to it. Use it for God's glory. If you don't have that gift, if you're single and you're single, not because you have the grace gift, but just because you haven't had the opportunity to be married yet, be content where you are and don't waste your singleness until God sends somebody along for you at the appropriate time. Here's what it says. Each one has his own gift from God. One of one kind, one of another. And then he moves in verse eight to what's a really weird statement here. He says, to the unmarried and to the widows. Now, why is that a weird statement? Well, because he's not gonna address the unmarried and the betrothed until verse 25. But here at verse eight, he throws in this unmarried and the widows. And if you read the commentaries on this, most of the commentators think he's using unmarried here for the guys who were widowers, but they didn't really have a good term for widower back in his time. So here starts the commands for marriage. And he says to the unmarried, maybe to the widowers and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So if you're single, here's your trump card right here, all right? You got all these great verses where you can say, Paul says, stay single. But then in verse nine, you have the but. But if they cannot exercise self-control, in other words, if they don't have that gift, then they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, what does burn with passion mean? There's two interpretations of this. One of them is that you don't have the gifts, so you're going to end up in sexual immorality, and that means eventually you're going to end up in, in hell because you're not displaying the gifts of God, and so that's the burn. Probably not what it actually means here, though. It probably actually means here you're burning with passion towards someone else. Instead of that passion burning to the point where you can no longer control it, you're much better off entering into a marriage relationship with that person. And so he transitions right after that to another section. Now, this chapter has no real clear outline because he's just answering questions. And so in verse 10, he transitions. He says to the married, I give this charge. Now, here's where he gives you, not I, but the Lord. So Jesus said this in his time on the earth. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried. Let me put a comma right here, okay? In this room, a room this size, there are many people who have been divorced. There are many people who your parents have been divorced. You've felt the tragedy of divorce in your own immediate family. And so as I talk about the remainder of this passage, allow me to say it and start it and preface it this way. If you've been divorced, there is enough grace at the cross for everybody. I'm not here to condemn anybody. I'm not trying to to make statements as I walk through this chapter that would harm or hurt anybody in any way. But if you have been divorced or if you know somebody that's gone through divorce, would you agree with me that it's one of the greatest tragedies in life and one of the hardest things to ever go through? Would you agree with that statement? And so will you give me grace for just a second to talk to everybody in the room that's single and not married about why marriage and divorce, particularly why divorce is something that God doesn't like? Is that okay? Can I do that without offending anybody in the room? All right, here's what it says. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from the husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. If you're married, divorce should not be an option. If you're dating somebody, you should make sure that divorce is not an option. And if it is an option, you need to know it's an option. 
if you're going to go in the front door and you know they've got this back door that's still unlocked that they are tempted to run through at the first sign of trouble, you need to know that. When my wife and I were dating, we had these conversations. I guess courting is probably a better word for us. But when we were doing whatever it was we were doing, I was trying to talk her into marrying me. When we were doing that thing, we had no backdoor option. I told her very clearly, if you ever leave me, I'm going with you. That's it. There is no backdoor option. For us, it can get as hard as it can ever get. There's no backdoor. There is no possibility that I'm ever going to say it's okay for me to get a divorce. Part of the difference and the, the, the problem in our society, and again, I don't, mean to, I don't mean to hurt anybody when I make these statements, is the no-fault divorce claims that came in the 70s. When our society started a no-fault divorce claim, what we did is we basically took the covenant of marriage and we turned it into a contract. And that contract now means if you don't uphold your end of the bargain, I can get out of my end of the bargain. But marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. And when my wife and I stood before a preacher who just happened to be my dad, and we had our backs to the congregation and all of our friends who were watching us, we made a covenant before each other and before God. And in that covenant, I didn't say to my wife, if you cook good breakfast, I'll stay with you. I didn't say to my wife, if you obey the first part of chapter seven, I'll stay with you. I didn't say, y'all get that later. That's okay. I didn't say to her anything of that nature. I said to her, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, I will be there with you. It's nothing about her. It's my covenant to her before God that that's what I'm going to do. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, to the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. Don't separate from the husband. Husband, don't get a divorce. You say, wait a second. You're supposed to know about the Matthew passages, the accept sexual immorality clause that Jesus gives. He does. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19. It doesn't show up in Mark and it doesn't show up in Luke, and you've got to ask yourself the question why. There's some who believe that Jesus was talking there about the betrothal view, and that when you were betrothed, if you found out there was sexual immorality, you could walk away for those reasons. There are some who say, no, that's sexual immorality amongst the marriage relationship. But even if you take it and you say it's sexual immorality in the marriage relationship, you also have to put together what else is in Matthew chapter 19 there, where he says, it was not so from the beginning. In the beginning, the two should become one flesh and what God joins together, let no man separate. But Moses allowed this because of the hardness of your hearts. You understand this. If you have two people and one person cheats on them, it's very, very difficult to forgive that person. And so because of the hardness of the heart, because of sexual immorality, Moses allowed for divorce, and that's what Jesus is saying. And so that's your exception clause. In Malachi 2.16, in some of your translations, it says God hates divorce. In other translations, it words it a different way. But the main overarching theme is that God does not like divorce. And so he gives this to the married. Do not get divorced. In verse 12 then, he says, to the rest... I say, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, think about the situation here. A lot of people getting saved. Two unbelievers are married together. One of them gets saved and the other one's not saved. How does that change things? Well, hey, honey, you want to go out to the bar tonight? No, I don't think I do. Hey, honey, you want to watch this bad movie that we should have never been watching all along? No, I'm saved now. I can't do that. Well, you know what? You're no fun anymore. You see how a relationship could change when one person gets saved. And so Paul's saying here, if you have a wife who's an unbeliever, 
Or if you happen to have married and you should never date an unbeliever, by the way, you should never become romantically involved with an unbeliever. But if you happen to end up in that situation and she's content to live with him, he shouldn't divorce her. If any woman in verse 13 has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Now, what does that mean? That should mean that if you're living out the gospel in the way that the gospel is supposed to be lived out, then that person in that household is going to have a gospel witness with them 24-7. And if you have a gospel witness with you 24-7, you're going to have a better chance of accepting the grace of what Jesus Christ did on the cross by grace through faith than somebody who doesn't hear. It doesn't mean that just by marrying somebody who's not saved, they're going to become a believer. That's not what it means. He continues on here and he says... Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. So there's another clause given here by Paul. That's an exception clause. If you're married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever walks out on you, let it be so. We don't have time to go into all the details. But you can think about scenarios where you have two people, one thinks their other one's a believer, it turns out they're not a believer, they start doing innumerable horrible things and they walk away from the relationship. What are you supposed to do in that particular scenario? You can't necessarily chase them down or go with them. The sake of peace, it would not be allowable. And so Paul here says, if you're with an unbeliever and they don't wanna stay with you, then let them go for the sake of peace because God has called us to peace. In verse 16, it says, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So in Corinth, people get saved, they're unequally yoked there, they're with a believer and they're an unbeliever and they're a believer. He says, how do you know they're not eventually going to come to know the Lord, stay with them, pray for them, minister to them, give it a chance to work? Verse 17, and here's a point I want to get to you. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So here we have a universal rule in all the churches, not just for Corinth. Was anyone at the time of the call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Can you imagine what the Jews would have thought when Paul made that statement in that particular context? Circumcision being so important, and he says to him, circumcision doesn't matter. Uncircumcision doesn't matter. It's whether you love Jesus and it's what you're doing for Christ. And so today I stand here and I say to you, it doesn't matter if you're married. It doesn't matter if you're single. What matters is your devotion to God and your love for Jesus Christ. And so if you're single, use your singleness for God's glory. If you're married, use your marriage for God's glory. It doesn't matter. You're not a lesser person one way or the other. Use them both. And he continues on. And this one may strike us even harder. Each one should remain in the condition to which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. Really? Paul, even if you're a slave, don't be concerned about it. And then he says, well, if you have the opportunity to get your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he is called is a bondservant of Christ. What Paul's saying here is if you're a slave and you get saved, you're free in Christ. If you're free and you get saved, you're a slave to Christ. It doesn't matter. And so here he gives you the live as you are called command. Verse 23 says you were bought with a price. 
Do not become a bondservant of men. So brothers, whatever condition each of you was called, let him remain with God. Now I've got to rush through the rest of this. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, let me read that again. Verse 26, you say, Paul saying stay single here. Paul is saying in the Corinthian circumstance, I believe in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. What is that present distress? We don't know. You can read all the commentaries. We really don't know. Perhaps it was some persecution. Perhaps it was economic. Perhaps it was other things. But he says, whatever the present distress is, remain as you are. Verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. So if you're here and you say, I definitely don't have that grace gift, all right? I definitely am one of those guys that want to get married. That's me, all right? I was a guy, I didn't have the gift. I'm a guy that is a married guy. I'm happily married. I want to be married. I love my family. I love my children. If you're here and you don't have the gift of singleness, you're not doing anything wrong if you get married, okay? Yet, at the same time, Paul says here, If a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned, yet those who married will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. That is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. There's some situations there where he's saying, I think it's better if you stay single. So if you're in the room and you have the grace gift of being single, celebrate it. You don't have the same troubles I have. Let me tell you about troubles. So I want to spend some time with my daughter this weekend because I've been really busy with the missions conference last week. Haven't seen my kids a whole lot. The missions conference was awesome. How many of you think the missions conference was awesome? Wasn't it incredible? And so I wouldn't have missed it for anything, but I've got a daughter at home. And so I need to hang out with my daughter. So guess what happens on Saturday? We have two basketball games. So I have to balance coming to the basketball games and getting free tacos and hanging out with my wife and my children. And so I talk my daughter into coming to the basketball game and I'll buy her a bunch of good stuff while we're here, all right? She ate all kind of junk food that her mom knew nothing about until right now. But she had a great time because I've got concerns of this world that I'm trying to balance, right? And so she gets to eat M&Ms and Sprees and drink soda and do all kind of stuff. That's probably when she was a little hyper Saturday night. Now you know. And so Sunday we go to church. So I come home from church on Sunday and what do I need to do? I need to work on 1 Corinthians 7. What does my daughter want to do? Build a castle. So what do we do? We build a castle with little cement that you mix with water that actually makes cement and you put the little blocks together. And for two hours, Sunday afternoon, I sat there with a football game on in the background while I built a castle with the daughter that I love. Concerns. For a married man, they're there and they're real. How many of you single people built a castle Sunday afternoon? Anybody? Okay, my point is made, I'm moving on. Here he says, verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Don't use this passage to neglect your family and lose your family. That's not what it means. 
What it means is focus on Jesus, focus on the gospel, focus on the end that is coming quickly and the situation that was at hand for them. In verse 32, it says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. Unmarried men in the room, be anxious about the things of the Lord. Don't waste your singleness. Don't spend your singleness desiring to get married so much so that you idealize it and you put it up on a pedestal that can never be achieved. But the married man's anxious about worldly things. How do I provide? How do I pay the bills? How do I take care of? How do I provide for college? How am I going to pay for a wedding that costs an obnoxious amount of money when my daughter decides to get married one day? How am I going to send her to college, which costs a lot of money? And that's one reason I want to lower tuition, right? How am I going to make sure that I provide for retirement and all of those type things? Concerns of this world, I have them, I know them, I feel them. His interest is divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. Ladies, if you're single, don't worry about ring by spring. Don't waste your singleness. Live for God. That's what he's saying here. Celebrate that. Use the time for God. Do things now that you can't do later. Because as it says here, the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, if it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it's no sin. You don't have the gift, get married. If you're engaged to a girl and you haven't set a date, set a date, all right? If you're treating them wrong, one way you treat them wrong is by leading them on forever. Be a man, step up, set a date, do what you should. If you have those passions, if it's strong, marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. He who refrains from marriage will do even better. So if you're single, celebrate it. If you're married, celebrate it. If you're single, use it for God. If you're married, use it for God. Everybody get the point? We're not exalting one over the other. Paul's not saying, though, that singleness is that much better than marriage. Because in Ephesians 5, when you read the picture he gives there, it's incredible. And so what we're saying is either one is good. Whichever God has called you to, that's what you should be called to, and that's what you should do. Verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Verse 40, yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains single as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. My summary statement is, what is good? Marriage is good. Singleness is good. What is bad? Divorce is bad. Being married and not having sexual relations is bad. It's a summary of your passage, Okay. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what it says to us about the gifts that you give us and how good they are, whether that gift is singleness or marriage. I pray for our students that you will be with them as they go to class, that you will help them to honor you wherever you have them in life, and that you will help us just to be satisfied in Jesus and passionate about the gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.